Good afternoon, everybody. Um, and I am very conscious as I give this topic that um, I don't need to convince anybody in this room of this title. I'm also aware that this talk is uh, could be viewed by by um, others as well. Um, but um, and I hope that. Uh, you will get something out of this, it will give you some food for thought, but I hope that um, if anybody else watches it who, who doesn't believe in the creation, um, that uh, it might actually sort of like spark some interest there as well, because, because I think this is, this is um, a, it, potentially it's quite a big topic. Um, Esther will know because she's heard me speaking about this before, although not for quite some time. But my family, I annoy the life out of my family about this topic specifically because it, it is one of my um, big interests. Uh, there, there are two whole shelves in the bookshelf with books on this subject. Um, and uh, I was sitting at dinner time today. Uh, why I did it, I don't know. But I, I, in preparation for this talk today, um, this week I have bought another four books, uh, which I will. I, I've, I've obviously not read this week because uh, you know I do have to go to work occasionally. Um, but I, I think it's a fascinating uh, subject. Um, and it, it can actually be approached from seven diff several different ways and, and we will do a, a, at least a couple of uh, approaches in the talk or think about a couple of different things in the talk. Um, I'll start off, though, with these words from Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. I believe that God's word is... Exactly that. It it is the infallible word of God, and I believe um, everything uh, that is written within its pages. That doesn't necessarily mean that I believe that everything that is written in the in, in those pages is literal. Um, and there are many symbolic passages within Scripture. And the reason that we read from Genesis chapter 1 is that I think there is symbolism within Genesis chapter 1. And I think it's very important that when we read a chapter like uh, Genesis chapter 1, that we also realise that this is not supposed to be a scientific textbook. Okay? It is very interesting, uh, as we read through Genesis chapter 1, that we see the order of creation has been recorded in the way science believes that life originated particularly. Um, however, um, I believe that if God had wanted to instantaneously create all, he had the power to do so. Okay? It didn't need to take that... that uh, those time periods I, I, and th that's not what this talk is going to be about is to discuss um, exactly how uh, it took place um, but I think it is important to remember that Genesis chapter 1 is not a scientific textbook but the reason that we have to think about this subject is because of a uh, Lots of different people, but this man. 
Uh, Richard Dawkins, I'm sure most of you will have heard of Richard Dawkins. Uh, Richard Dawkins is probably one of the most well-known atheists in our, in our country at the moment. And, um, and, and he has started off, he starts off his approach, and I think this is quite important, is that the way I will approach this subject is I approach it believing that God is the creator. He approaches this subject believing there is no God and therefore it all has to be explained without that, uh, without any kind of design. And Richard Dawkins has said that after Darwin, you can be an intellectually fulfilled atheist. So he has no qualms about saying that he does not believe in God. Um, and of course, uh, he has always known about uh, Darwin's evolution. But before Darwin produced his book, which we'll come back to shortly, um, there was no explanation for how life came about. And Darwin came along, explained it, and suddenly people who didn't want God in their lives could now say, well, this is where it all came from. You will, I'm sure, all be aware that there are some different approaches to how uh, this, how life came about uh, with a designer. Uh, and I've got here at the top of that diagram, we've got intelligent design. And then uh, bizarrely, you might think on one side, on the right hand side, we've got uh, non-theistic. That's those who believe that life on this planet originated uh, from space, that basically an asteroid uh, hit the Earth that, can, that had organic material on it and that that led to life on this planet. It doesn't explain how the organic material came about extraterrestrially, but that's how it is explained. And then within theistic uh, intelligent design, we have uh, young Earth creationists, ancient Earth creationists, and then what's called theistic evolution. That's where uh, people uh, teach and believe that um, the world did come about by evolutionary processes, but that it was evolution guided by a designer. Um, in, a, in an Ipsos Mori poll uh, carried out for BBC's Horizon round about 2005, uh, there were over 2,000 participants and they were asked, what best describes your view of the origin and development of life? Less than a quarter, 22% believed in creation, 17% in idea, intelligent design, and 48% in evolutionary theory. So the vast majority of people um, believe in evolution. Now, interestingly, I think the vast majority of people might believe in evolution, but they don't really know very much about it. Uh, and it's interesting that when you speak to uh, people who believe in evolution that most of them do not understand how evolution came about. But one man obviously started it all. He, he has tried, he or he did try. He was the first person to imprint, uh, produce information about uh, evolutionary processes. So uh, from December 1831, 
uh, to October 1836, Charles Darwin uh, was on a voyage, uh, a five-year voyage, uh, mainly around the coast of uh, South America. And most famously, uh, he visited uh, the Galapagos Islands in the Pacific, which are uh, west of Ecuador. Um, and he, after he had come back, he spent several years uh, and then produced this book on the origin of species by means of natural selection. And basically, uh, it's important for us to realise that uh, evolution, evolutionary processes say that uh, mutations occur in a, in a living being and that those mutations uh, um, convey some type of advantage and therefore uh, the, it makes a, a, a living creature more likely to be able to reproduce and then pass that advantage on and eventually that uh, will lead to changes and um, and we'll come back to that uh, because it's really important because in fact I'm going to point out to you that that actually does occur. But what it doesn't explain and what Darwin postulised uh, but which we'll see uh, again is that uh, to go from a single cell creature to a human being is not actually explained by current evolutionary theory. Now in 1879 Darwin said that uh, he had never been an atheist in the sense of denying the existence of God. Uh, and generally, an agnostic would be more correct description of my state of mind, um, is what he said. So he, he always claimed um, that he thought there was something there. But um, there is no doubt that uh, by producing this book that it gave many, many people uh, who uh, felt that there was no need for God in their lives an opportunity to scientifically see where life had come from. Remember I said that we would come back to this idea of natural selection. So one of the things which in the past um, people who were arguing from a creation, creation point of view would say natural selection doesn't happen. And, and, and that's actually not true. There are lots and lots and lots of evidence for uh, natural selection occurring. And this is one of the classic ones. Uh, Darwin's finishes. Um, basically, uh, when he was in the Galapagos Islands, there are several different islands uh, within uh, the archipelago and when he went to different islands uh, one form of finch uh, would appear could be found in each each of the islands and all the, the forms of finch were slightly different um, usually related to to their beaks and it turns out that uh, when it was a, a very good year from uh, from uh, sort of the fruits that were being produced in the island, if it was a nice sort of wet year and the fruits were nice and soft, then uh, the birds with smaller beaks uh, uh, and not so hard beaks would be able to eat. But in years where there was perhaps drought to get into seeds and things, that a harder beak and a longer beak would give a finch an advantage. And 
So therefore, depending on the, the, the natural weather systems within an island would affect the type of finch. And, and this was one perfect example. And this, uh, the Darwin's finches, uh, is one of the prime examples that people use to say, well, here's natural selection in action. It obviously shows us that Charles Darwin's theory uh, is in fact a fact that it, that it occurs. And there are lots of things like this. Um, if anybody's interested, I, I can recommend uh, some books to read, uh, and we'll come back uh, uh, very shortly to an author called Michael Behe, and here he writes a whole chapter on uh, the change in the malaria parasite, because again, uh, lots of you will have heard about antibiotic resistance, and that is related to natural selection. So we know that that occurs. But the important thing to remember is that uh, it, it is likely that all of these finches develop from, because the Galapagos Islands are, are about 600 miles off of the coast of Ecuador, the, they probably all descended from a single finch and then sort of they, they changed, they evolved and they did evolve into all these different finches. But the important thing to remember is that they're all finches. When we think about antibiotic um, resistance and antibiotics changing so that they're resistant to, a, 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 sorry, bacteria changing so that they're resistant to antibiotics, it's really important to remember that those bugs which change, the bacteria which change, are still the same bacteria. It's not that the bacteria change and become different types of creatures. These finches didn't start off as a single finch and then become a mammal, for example. And I, and I think that's something that's really, really important. So Darwin's theory explains natural selection. It, it does, a natural selection occurs. But what it doesn't do is talk about uh, what is colloquially described by one of the groups uh, who are uh, creationists as goo to you. That, it doesn't explain that under any circumstances. And this is one of the reasons why. So anybody uh, who has uh, looked at this, the, the, this phrase, irreducible complexity, was coined by this man, Michael Behe, who's a, an American biochemist, and he wrote a book called Darwin's Black Box, which you can get hold of on Amazon. It, 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 it's also sold by The Office. I think it's a really, really good book. It's sold by the Christadelphian Office. Um, and anybody, it, 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 there are some complexities within it from a biochemical point of view, but it's actually relatively easy to read. And there are lots of examples within his book about what we call irreducible complexity. And he coined this phrase to describe something that uh, had lots of component parts and when you took one of the components away, then it wouldn't work. And therefore how you would therefore evolve, because you couldn't evolve one component at a time because the system wouldn't work. And the whole point of natural selection is that it conveys an advantage which therefore is transferred. But if there is no advantage because the whole thing isn't working properly, then it will not be transferred to offspring. 
And he gives some examples in his book of things like uh, blood clotting uh, the bi and the biochemistry of vision. We're going to think of a couple of, uh, of other examples of irreducible complexity. But this is one of the most fascinating subjects if you're thinking about uh, the evolution of life or the non-evolution of life uh, is these are these things which all work together as one piece. And this is one of those things which I would argue demonstrates irreducible uh, complexity. This is the cell membrane. Okay, so we all know that we are made up of uh, lots of different cells. Millions and millions, billions and billions, in fact, uh, of cells make up the human being. And what the, uh, what the cell membrane does is it separates the inside of the cell from the outside environment, what's called the extracellular space. Um, and it consists of a fatty bilayer. So these bits here, this is the fatty bilayer. And um, it, is, um, it has embedded proteins within it. Um, and you can see that there's proteins on the outside, there's proteins on the inside, and then there's proteins that go the whole way through the membrane. Um, the cell membrane is selectively permeable. Um, and uh, so that means that most things actually don't pass over it freely. Water does. Water can move uh, quite freely across our cell membranes, uh, but other things don't. So, for example, things like uh, sodium and potassium, uh, glucose, they don't uh, they don't move freely over the cell membrane. Um, and for survival reasons, uh, the cell uh, will move different substances uh, from the outside to the inside and from the inside to the outside. Uh, an example, um, most people don't realise that there's actually an electrical gradient across our cell membranes. So the inside of our cells, of every single body cell, is negative compared to the outside. And um, again, well, I'm sure we've all heard of potassium. Well, there's a lot of potassium inside the cell uh, and much more than there is outside. Uh, and interestingly, potassium is actually one of those things that freely crosses the cell membrane. But sodium can't. And... Uh, and therefore, sodium and potassium are exchanged across the cell membrane to help to maintain this uh, electrical gradient. Um, but the interesting thing about the cell membrane is how it evolved. At, at some point, according to Darwinian evolution, the first time... Uh, the cell membrane formed and, and, and enclosed the cell components and separated the inside from the outside. Well, there would be no reason to have all these different pumps that cross the cell membrane. They, they wouldn't need to develop if, if it hadn't ever enclosed before. And yet, as soon as that cell membrane enclosed its first cell, the inside is separated from the outside. And in fact... That means that the inside would never survive and the cell would therefore die. And it couldn't work 
unless it had all these proteins embedded in it already, which would allow pumping across the cell membrane. But yet, why would those proteins develop? Because there was no need for them to be there to pump things across the cell membrane. So we have this chicken and egg scenario. Which came first? The, the pumps on the cell membrane or the cell membrane itself? Uh, and, and interestingly, uh, this is a quote which you don't have to read the whole thing. I'll, I'll just summarise it. Uh, basically what it says is cell membranes have been so advantageous that they, these encased replicators, so that makes the living cell quickly outcompeted naked replicators, i.e. something that was living but wasn't enclosed by a cell membrane. Now, interestingly, we have absolutely no evidence of naked replicators, of something that was living without being a cell. But you see, the story doesn't work unless you have those. So, the, this statement from the Museum of Paleontology, basically you have to make something up. And what we'll see again and again and again throughout the talk is that you actually have to have faith to believe in evolution. So you have to come up with these things which we have no evidence for whatsoever to make your story fit together. And, and going back to Richard Dawkins, Richard Dawkins in the book The Blind Watchmaker actually states biology is the study of complicated things that have the appearance of having been designed with a purpose. Okay? So that is the words of one of the most famous atheists of our time. Somebody who quite clearly has demonstrated his belief in Darwin's theory of evolution. That it all came about of chan by chance, but it looks like it might have been designed. Well, do you know, if it looks like it might have been designed, then... Why deny the designer? Here's another example of something uh, which uh, I believe is irreducibly complex. But the interesting thing is, this, this is irreducibly complex for more than one reason. You can see there at the top of the screen, insulin. This is an insulin receptor. Now, we've all heard of insulin. It's made by the pancreas. It's considered to be one of the main anabolic hormones in our bodies. And it's got several different actions. But the one that most people know most about is that it causes glucose to move into the body cells. Now, insulin doesn't actually move into the cell itself. But it acts on uh, this receptor. So this is a picture, a pictorial representation of an insulin receptor and basically insulin attaches in the outside and it causes a reaction on the inside of the cell and that's how insulin has its action. But isn't that interesting? So the, so the, the complex itself, I would argue, the receptor itself is irreducibly complex. You can see it's made up of different components and it doesn't work without all of the components being there. So in itself, it's irreducibly complex. But in fact, the insulin receptor working together is also an irreducibly complex component because the receptor 
doesn't do anything unless there's any insulin there. But if the insulin was there without the receptor, then it still wouldn't work. And there are lots and lots of different things uh, within living cells, within living bodies that work exactly like that. That you need to have more than one thing working at the same time. So for example, uh, in the uh, Richard Dawkins writes another book called Climbing Mount Improbable and he gives a very, what you might regard as being a very plausible argument for the development of the eye. Interestingly, as you read through it, it's all, this could have happened, that could have happened, this could have been the process. It's all uh, very much about, this might have been how it happened. But what he never addresses at any point is that as well as uh, being able to, for the eye to work, you also actually have to have all the attachments that interpret the light going into the eye into vision. And it doesn't matter how good your eye is. If it's not attached to something else that interprets vision. So for example, he gives the idea, he, he suggests that the simplest eye is a light spot. And that if a creature had a light spot, so a light spot is literally one that can tell the difference between light and dark. So the light spot, if it went dark, then the creature with this light spot would know that that was a predator. Well, how does it know it's a predator and it's not food, for example? Because you need to be able to interpret the message. And, and that's what a great deal of evolutionary theory does not seem to take into account, is that these systems, these complexes, do not evolve on their own in isolation. All these things work together. And without one, the rest of it doesn't work. So, design or not. Now remember that quote that we had from Richard Dawkins about things appearing to be designed? This is what... Uh, Charles Darwin says there seems to be no more design in the variability of organic beings and in the action of natural selection than in the course in which the wind blows. Now I think that's quite a sad thing for Charles Darwin to have said. No more design in the variability of organic beings and yet here we have a man Richard Dawkins who doesn't, definitely doesn't believe in God saying actually things quite often look like they might have been designed. And Michael Behe, in, in his book, uh, if, if you want to read any chapter out of his book, uh, chapter 9, which is Intelligent Design, uh, is, is a really interesting chapter to read because he points out that it's actually quite difficult to show that something hasn't been designed. Okay? So, what do you think of that? It looks, it, it, I mean, it's a pile of junk, isn't it? It looks like a pile of junk. If you were to walk past that uh, out in the street, a pile like that, you would think somebody has just been cleaning out their house and they've thrown, thrown uh, all of this stuff out into the street. 
but just watch. Okay? Now we're moving, changing the perspective. And uh, now, see when you look through the little stand thing at the front? That's actually what you see. This is a portrait of Ferdinand Cheval, who was a French postman. And that pile of junk right there is that. That was produced by French artist uh, Bernard Pra or Prass, I'm not entirely sure how to pronounce his name. But what appeared to be a pile of junk is actually designed. That's the picture that it produces. The, the, the easiest way to see, see the, the little round thing at the top uh, at the piano. If you look back, you can see it there. Okay? So that's exactly what you're looking at. William Dembski, who's a mathematician uh, involved in the intelligent design movement, has actually written a book showing that recognising design involves, first of all, uh, what would be seen as an improbable object, but then a recognisable pattern. And isn't, isn't it interesting that science very often denies... Uh, or many scientists will deny the existence of God. But nobody actually... Oh, sorry, we'll come back in a, a second to that, uh, uh, to, to, to what I'm saying, because I want to very quickly uh, note this uh, quote from Francis Critch. Biologists must constantly keep in mind that what they see was not designed, but rather evolved. That's very similar to the one that Richard Dawkins said, isn't it? So this was the man who discovered... Uh, who was the co-discoverer of the double helix structure of DNA. Remember, it's not designed, it evolved. But isn't it interesting that science doesn't want to believe in God, but we don't have any problems searching for extraterrestrials. So this, the, this array uh, of... Uh, um, telescopes is searching for extraterrestrial life. SETI, the SETI project, which still runs to this day. And what it is doing is it's looking for patterns in electromagnetic radiation which would indicate intelligent life. Okay? So it's looking for a pattern. So science is out there looking for evidence of life beyond this world. But in fact, it seems to forget that that pattern already exists in DNA. DNA, uh, which is uh, what this uh, picture represents, is one of the most fascinating structures that we know of in the world. Um, it's found in every single living cell and it's the most, it has been acknowledged to be the most sophisticated information system in the world. But science wants to tell us that it came about by chance. So we look at, we look at patterns, we're looking to space to see patterns which would indicate um, intelligent life. 
but on our own planet, we've already got the patterns there. This is exactly what DNA is. But science wants to tell us that it came about by chance. The changes that would be required for the evolutionary process to occur would require such a huge increase in genetic information for which there is no evidence that uh, that increase in genetic information occurs. The vast majority of uh, mutations which we do know occur leads to a loss of information. The vast majority. And why do we want to deny it? Well, we want to deny it because if you know that there's a designer, then it demands a response. Anthony Flew was an English, uh, well, he's still alive. He's an English philosopher. He's an extremely strong advocate of atheism. And in fact, he was one of the signatories of the, human, the second humanist manifesto. And he is certainly not a Christian. But this is what he said um, in, in the uh, first part of uh, the, the last decade. It now seems to me that the findings of more than 50 years of DNA research have provided materials for a new and enormously powerful argument to design. And in fact, in late 2006, he joined 11 academics who urged the British government to teach intelligent design in state schools. So this was a man who had never believed any designer. And he is not a Christian. He does not follow any established religion at all. But what he says is that he now cannot believe that there is not a designer. He won't say who he believes the designer is, but he believes that the evidence says there must be a designer. Now, if biology is not your thing, and you want to look at uh, evolution and the concept of a designer uh, from a non-biological point of view, there, there are other ways to look at it. Uh, and um, I would direct people to this book, Darwinian Fairy Tales. Uh, David Stove was a, a, a philosopher who believed that there were many flaws in Darwin's theory of evolution. And in fact, in this book, the first chapter of the book is called Darwin's Dilemma. And what he notes is that if Darwin's evolution theory of evolution was true, then every single species in the world, including our own, would be in a constant and ruthless competition to survive. Because that's what survival of the fittest is all about. It's a competition in which only a few in any generation can win. And yet, quite clearly, the human race now does not seem to be in that race for natural selection. And he points out, so, that, so a little bit tongue-in-cheek in this chapter, but he points out that there are different types of men have, have obviously evolved Caveman, for example, at some point in the past, mankind decided to care for others in society. Now, 
That's not part of evolutionary theory. Evolutionary theory is when they're old and they can't do anything, you go out and kill them because all they're doing is using up the resources. But that's not human society. We are all subject to natural selection according to Darwin's theory. And therefore he comes up, again, David Stove comes up with this idea of the hard man. There's a constant struggle for life and things like hospitals, unemployment benefits and charity are bad for the human race. And unfortunately, there are those in the human race who have believed that. That is exactly the philosophy of Adolf Hitler and the Nazis during the Second World War. We will produce a race which will go on and take over the whole world because we are the master race. But the vast majority of the human race is not like that. So at what point in evolutionary history, if we evolved, did the human race decide, well actually natural selection isn't for us. We are going to take care of our elderly. We're going to take care of our sick. And of course I believe, as I stated at the start, that the reason that I do not espouse to evolutionary theory is because I believe that there is a designer. And the designer, I believe, uh, is God, the God of the Bible. And in fact, the Bible is full of passages which talk of God as being the designer. Um, we're just going to look at a couple of them uh, uh, as we uh, bring our thoughts to an end. Um, from both the Old and the New Testament, we read again and again and again that God created the heavens and the earth and everything within them. The eye is an extremely complicated structure and the way that the eye takes an image and transfers it into our brains and then our brains interpret it, it is hugely complicated. The, the ear as well. The ear takes sounds and uh, this message goes through to our brains and we can interpret these sounds. And I believe that they have been created by God who is the great designer. And as I say, the lots of passages, the reason that we didn't read, the reason that we read Genesis chapter 1 at the start is because it is that wonderful picture of creation. But there, aren't, there isn't just one passage in the, in the Bible, uh, apart from Genesis chapter 1 and 2, which talk about the concept of God as the creator. Uh, it's, it's scattered in verses throughout. And we keep seeing it again and again and again. And we see it at the start of our Bible. And we see it right at the end of our Bible. So... I hope that I've given you a little bit food for thought. Okay, this is, as I say, is a huge subject. I can tell you afterwards about the different resources that you could look at. Uh, there are lots of uh, websites out there, for example, which uh, you can look at, which show the huge gaps in evolutionary theory and which point towards an evolutionary designer. Uh, a, a designer, sorry. Um, we don't necessarily agree with all the religion behind many of these websites, um, but 
Uh, they do make for very interesting reading when you are looking at the concept of God as the creator. And I just want to finish uh, with these words here from the book of Isaiah. Because the important thing is that it's not just about the concept of creation and a designer. What the Bible actually tells us is that the designer put us here for a reason. He wants a response from us. And the response from us in the first instance should be to read his word. To read the Bible. To find out what it is he wants from us. That's the reason why people don't want to believe excuse me, in God. And to believe in a designer for life. Because if they realise that there's a designer, they have to do something about it. And I hope that this talk has encouraged all of us to do something about it.